0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, February 4th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. Money Monday, right? It's financials. That's what we're talking here today, folks. Financials, Industry Focus. On today's show, we're going to dig into how sports is going cashless. We're going to tap into Twitter. We'll have one to watch, as always. But we begin today with another installment of Between Two Fools. Founded in 1971 as American Banking Company, Ameris Bank Corp has become a major player in the southeastern banking scene. Dennis Zember is the CEO of Ameris, and on this week's Between Two Fools, we have part one of our two-part interview to learn more about his extensive experience in the banking industry and why he's excited about where Ameris is headed in the coming years. Now, Dennis, you've been with the company since 2005. What are some of the strengths of the Ameris culture uh, that you feel like are part of the DNA of the company? What what kind of culture do you have at Ameris, and, and how do you feel like that that gives you an edge in, in what you guys do?
1: Okay, Jason, thank you. I, I guess you know the company started in 1971, and really started you know in Moultrie, Georgia, Southwest Georgia, a small town. Really grew when it did start growing, it grew into other small towns. And I guess just when the company's in a small town like that, everybody knows their banker, like yes. their pastor or the doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't help but have relationships with the customers. And so as we grew up, you know, having a relationship, something that was important to us. I mean, over the years, we've expanded that, had to expand that beyond customers. I mean, we believe it's a style that works with. Even with examiners and our regulators, we spend quite a bit of time in their office—not uh, just when they ask us to come, but you know when it's when we think it's the right time to go to talk about what's going on with the company. We relationships with each other here at the office, um, in the community organizations that we sponsor or that we volunteer um, our time with. I I'd, I'd go as far as to say we. Would even do that with our competitors? I just, oh, really? Relationships matter, and I think over over. Granted, you know we're not a two or three billion dollar bank anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I joined yeah. the company in two thousand five, we were just barely a billion dollars, and we were about a hundred million dollar market cap. And clearly, relationship means something different then that it does now. Uh, the kind of customers we're looking at today, and especially in larger markets like Atlanta and Jacksonville, Orlando, Charleston, it's tougher to have the kind of relationships you do with your banker there that you can in a smaller town. I, I go beyond that, though, and say, you know, a lot of times small community banks, as they grow, sometimes, and I, I, I don't mean this to, I hope this doesn't sound critical, but a lot of times they'll use the relationship Word maybe as an excuse for doing something that's less impressive for the shareholder, huh. um, and that is not the case here. I I think, uh, you know, for delivering for us delivering a result that's good enough is not what we're about here. And for I would say for the better part of a decade, we've been refining and. Kind of defining how we can deliver a, a, a result for the investor that is so meaningful that we can guarantee our independence and not sacrifice our zeal for the customer and for our zeal for a relationship. So I guess we've we Along with our passion for the customer and relationships, we think we found this perfect intersection where we can be meaningful for them and still be meaningful and impressive for our shareholder.
0: Yeah, and I think you've keyed in on something there in regard to relationships, because I feel like that, you know, that's something I talk a lot about with not only Ameris, but with just smaller businesses in general. You have the opportunity really to nurture and grow those relationships just because you're not as big as some of those mega banks perhaps that are out there and, and and so that's i guess one of the challenges is as you grow being able to maintain that but what i've seen in in your company through the years is certainly a desire to do that in in part of that manifests itself in you could see quarter after quarter after quarter in your releases and your calls you all take a very uh similar approach to your company as we do here in the businesses that we analyze, we're looking for long-term winners. We're looking for companies we can invest in and hold for three, five years, even 10 or indefinitely. And you run that business very much the same way. It's not about hitting these quarterly marks that Wall Street may be setting. And I think that that's one of the things that always struck me about the company was your long-term focus there. Is that fair?
1: It, it absolutely, absolutely, that's fair and accurate. Uh, you know, relationships. If you, 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 I don't want that. I don't want to use that word so much that it becomes a cliche. But <laughs> yeah. you, when you're serious about relationships, I mean, what what, what is short term about that word? You're what right. is short term about building relationships? We are. I forgot I even. I'm, Starting in 1971, we are serious about staying independent, and what you know, we we are and we are serious about next quarter's results and serious about this coming year's results. But we definitely think long term here, and you know, I think one last thing about relationships. I, you know, when you're coming up and, you, and you're and you're small but kind of competing with the the. You're a billion, but you're competing with three billion dollar banks. Or you're five billion competing with seven, eight, and ten billion dollar banks. Even right now, you know we're probably with Fidelity, we're pro forma, say sixteen billion. We're going to be competing with twenty and twenty-five billion dollar banks. You know we think relationships and our ability to customize something for the customer, you know, that would sort of further endear them to us. Mm-hmm. That is. We can't lose sight of that. That's what makes us different. I mean, I'm not going to be able to out retail the large banks. I'm not going to be able to have more uh, physical locations than them. I'm, I'm, I'm probably never going to be able to out technology them, so to speak. I'm, right. I'm, the, what we bring to the table is an ability to customize something for the customer, an ability, you know, a relationship where we know their name, we know their family's name, we know things that are important to them. You know, if we lose sight of that, I guess, and maybe maybe there'll come a day when we are so large that you know we can't we can't know our customers' anniversary date. But I don't see that in our
0: near future. All right. Uh, now, you, you talking about relationships, and, and you, you mentioned the word regulators in in uh, just just a moment ago, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because going into this period of time during the financial crisis, the Great Recession. I started covering Ameris in late 2010, where it seemed like every little bank was was going under or or in trouble. Being a small-cap bank in Georgia may as well have been a death sentence. But in your case, you all actually prospered from that time. And one of the things that I've continue to communicate with with our members and investors here at The Motley Fool is that very often the FDIC came to you all at Ameris and saw you as a partner in helping to roll up a lot of those failed institutions, being able to serve as a partner for the FDIC in getting through that difficult time and coming out on the other side stronger. You were there through that whole time. Perhaps not necessarily as CEO, but but you've maintained a number of positions with the company. Can you talk a little bit about that period of time? That the mood, the attitude. I mean, what was that like being in that industry when it felt like the entire world must have been coming to an end?
1: It it was it was memorable. A funny story before I before I get into this, and I definitely have a few things that are interesting here for you and your listeners, but I remember when our stock was, you know, everybody's stock, not our stock, but everybody's stock was just down and down and down and down. And I, I, our tangible book value was probably $10 a share, and the stock traded past that, and it just kept going. And we got down to about $3.50 per share. And I remember my mom calling me and saying, Dennis, what?" What are you going to do? What are you going to do if the stock goes to zero? <laughs> and I said, "Mom, if the stock goes to zero, I'm going to buy every share. We're going to be okay, you know." And and she said, "Okay, okay." She she got it later what I was saying. Yeah. But um, you know, I think it, I'd like to say it was our charming ways that that sort of put us in a good place with the FDIC, but honestly, that's not the case. It was it was our capital position, right. And I think when you when you when you go back to two thousand and seven at the end we had had a pretty good year at the end of two thousand seven and I remember us going into into an executive team meeting, and it was i don't know it's probably. At the very end of o seven December or maybe it was January of two thousand eight, and we had earned hadn't had an okay year I mean we knew some things were teetering, but we had had an okay year, and we had executive bonuses scheduled to be paid and I remember us sitting in that meeting saying, "You know we can't pay these executive bonuses until we know for sure how these credits are going to turn out. We had had two large credits that had kind of faltered right there at the end of the year. So we didn't pay those incentives at the end that we had earned for 07. Well, by the time we got through 2008, Jason, or sort of middle of the year, we knew that this was going to be worse than we thought. Fortunately, we had not paid those bonuses. And because we hadn't, we were able to go in. I mean, it's tough when you pay big executive bonuses, that then you have to come in and, you know, start doing reduction in forces, or uh, closing branches, or or tightening up on on the expansion strategies. So we were in a position to to do some things uh, across the company that were tough. And that we hope we never have to do again, but doing things like that bolstered our operations and it and it sort of kept adding to capital because we were still profitable and in a good place, we were one of the first banks in georgia we We were the first bank in Georgia to take all of our part the maximum amount. I remember being at that board meeting, and we uh when we were talking about do we do this or or don't we and I, really, it came down to. We didn't know how deep the recession was going to be. It, maybe it wasn't going to be that bad. Maybe it, maybe it was going to be something to just last. The fact is, we didn't know. Yep. And so we did pretty much everything we possibly could before we needed to. We quit paying dividends. We, we did the reduction in force. We quit paying board fees. We quit doing 401K. I mean, we took part. All that to just say that by the time it, we had an opportunity to do the FDIC deals, we had done so many things to strengthen our company and strengthen our operations that we were in a that we were in a good place. I think what we've learned from that is to constantly be looking after our operations and looking after our balance sheet and looking after our management team and, and all of our strategies, so that whatever comes, you know, three six months from now, a year, two years, that we're in a position to take advantage of it. Um, I, would, I would tell you that the stars aligned for us. Um, I would tell you, I, I think the good Lord smiled on our company <laughs> in 2007 and seven and eight, and just helped us be prepared to take advantage of what was coming.
0: Well, I think there's a lot to that being prepared. It sounds like, again, that goes back to running this business with a longer-term vision in mind, and it's just I think it's another uh, shining example of the fact that you guys have been doing that for a very long time. And, and I mean, I started covering this in 2010. I think your total assets were maybe around two billion. Um, talking to our our investors and our listeners, and and about how this was. An impressive story of total assets. I mean, with this Fidelity acquisition, which we'll we'll get to that in a minute. But you're going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of sixteen billion dollars in total assets by the time that's all uh, said and done. And, and I, I agree with you. I think you walk out of a time like that, you learn so much. And I've I've said uh, more than once that going through that period of time as an investor, I think is going to be the most the most valuable investing lesson I'll ever have in my entire life. I learned a lot about not only the businesses that we cover, but also. Learned a lot about how to control my emotions as an investor, and really be able Mm -hmm. to uh, not let those day-to-day crises, so to speak, uh, result in those knee-jerk reactions. And a lot of people have trouble have trouble avoiding
1: that. I think just I'll add the kind of leadership lessons you learn when you're in that kind of situation where you've got to, you know, where you're constantly trying to motivate. People and you're, you know you're holding your best bankers together. I mean, it takes a different kind of leadership when you have the absolute best banker, the people that really get your results, time in and time out, and you have to go to them and say, "Listen, we're not going to be able to pay bonuses this year, or the stock options that you thought you were going to get, or you know." And I tell you, we came all the way through that and and didn't lose our bankers. I think we we. Crafted a vision for the company that said, look, "This is what we're going to look like when we come out of this, and this is worth this is worth fighting hard for and staying on on the team." And I, I, we did learn a lot about managing company and financially and, and you know the operations to stay profitable and, and healthy and in good place with the examiners but the sort of the more esoteric things about kind of leadership styles and and things like that it, it sharpened us
0: on that as well yeah I mean it, it speaks to the culture that you' developed there too because it sounds like uh, most of the uh, most of your employees were bought into what you guys were doing so I, I think that's uh, always always worth remembering. And joining me in the studio now via Skype is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going?
2: Just great. It's always good to be with you guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, another week, and uh, we we are definitely getting into earnings season here, so there's always a lot to talk about for sure. Um, and, and we'll uh, we'll certainly be talking more earnings as as the weeks go on. But but I wanted to talk a little bit because you know we just had the Super Bowl uh, yesterday and. And we've we've seen some other uh, articles here recently that are talking more and more about how sports uh, franchises, stadiums, arenas—they're all leading this push for cashless concessions. And we were reading an article specifically was was talking about Super Bowl uh, fifty-three, and also talking about the the Tampa Bay Rays actually really leading that push, and, and it just. This is something we talk about a lot on the show, of course, because it is a real market opportunity. It's it's something we've had a lot of success with with the world cash basket. Uh, I just think it it was an interesting article to read because from my perspective, anytime I go to one of those events, uh, it seems to me like cash is just a it's a it's a hindrance, it's a problem. You go and you're like, oh man, I got to stop by the cash machine to get cash for whatever. It'd be much easier if I could just pay with my phone or if they just had contactless payments and it sounds like that's what these sounds like what these uh sporting sporting events are really trying to do it sounds like huh
2: Yeah it sounds um Visa Visa is a big sponsor of the Super Bowl which probably has something to do with it <laughs> But um and it's not just for the on the consumer point of view it's for the business it's a benefit as well um you got to think not having cash re- greatly reduces your chances of getting robbed or employee theft You don't have to go to the bank anymore. You don't have to make certain capital investments, like having cash registers or a big safe in the back or things like that. For example, so there's benefits on both sides to not using cash. And as technology evolves, it's getting easier and easier to use contact contact payments and things like that. So it's getting easier for the consumer to use, which has been, in my opinion, the big hindrance up to this point. And I don't really foresee that trend reversing anytime soon
0: no i I don't either, and it was interesting so I, I put out a poll on Twitter a few days ago because I was reading another uh article that had done a survey in regard to mobile wallet versus contactless payments and I mean it got me thinking i mean i was, I just I wonder if there was a strong preference out there for one over the other, and so I asked. Uh, on Twitter, if if you know if you had your choice you know, in the physical world where you have to make a payment, like at a grocery store or a gas station or whatever, would you prefer to use your mobile wallet, you know your your Apple Pay or, or Google Pay, uh, or would you prefer to use a contactless payment form, like just you know waving a card and and uh, kind of like how we we get into the metro here in D.C. and Because I wasn't really sure myself initially if I had a preference. And it it turned out that about 60% of the people prefer uh, using a mobile wallet, a digital wallet, versus uh, contactless. And and the more I thought about it, you know, I I think I'd actually, if I had my druthers, I would probably go with the contactless payment Uh, just because, you know, a little card is so easy to pull out and wave and you know the less the less I have to worry about dealing with my phone uh, you know probably the better but i mean i guess it's it's either way right i mean it's they're both convenient and I like both options uh where do you stand on the contactless versus mobile wallet Matt? Um, I
2: like the contactless um i I just recently started i'm actually probably the least tech savvy person that covers covers fintech. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just got a Venmo account about 2 weeks 2 weeks ago. Nice. Um, but I've used Zelle and I've used cash. But, um I I could go either way. Right now I'm still one of the people who uses cash for small transactions, which I'm in jo- the majority on that um just to be clear on sure. that. Sure. Um cash still dominates small transactions. Um like for example, I could never see a convenience store going completely cashless. They would just lose too many customers cuz that's yeah. what they use. Um, but the latest statistic is about you know 48% of all transactions are now either credit or debit card based. That includes things like mobile wallet and uh, contactless payments. So I'm I'm one of the kind of later adopters, I guess you would say. But I definitely go contactless, especially with the how easy it is, especially through some of the newer mobile phones. I just got the the Galaxy Note nine, and it's the Samsung Pay is really easy to use where it's, where you can. and It's just becoming so much more user-friendly than it was just a few years ago.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that'll probably continue to be the case. Now, you were recently doing, because we talked about the legalities here with, with places uh, not accepting cash, and I think you're right. I think most places would be smart to always accept cash, because ultimately, you want to give your consumers choice, right? I mean, the place that gives their consumers the most choices is gonna probably generate more business over over the course of time you did some some research into the legality questions here if if a uh, you know an entity decides to go completely cash free and and how that could play out uh, on on the legal side of things what'd you what'd you come up with?
2: Yeah, it's especially like in um, in bigger cities, it's becoming a real trend where restaurants and things like that are going completely cashless. Um Starbucks is even testing out some cashless locations in certain areas. I know they have one in Seattle that's completely cashless right now, Um, so this kind of begs the question: Is that legal? Um, If you look at the money in your wallet, it says right there, it's this is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So I did a little bit of digging into that, and the long story short, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve both say that it's completely optional for a business to accept cash, and there's there's two main reasons why. First. The wording on the bill itself says that, in order for cash to be mandatory to be accepted, it has to be a debt. If you don't, if it's not the purpose of repaying a debt, then the business has no need to accept it. Um, they gave a really good example involving gas stations. Um, if you go to a clerk, because a lot of gas stations won't accept say fifty or hundred dollar bills at night. Right. Um, so if you go to the clerk with a fifty dollar bill and say I want to fill up my tank, they have the right to say no. If they let you pump and then go to pay, then it becomes a debt, and they legally do have to take the money. Uh Aha! So that's kind of an interesting kind of gray area. So if they let you kind of get the merchandise first, then it becomes you're indebted to them, and they do have to take it. Um, Reason number two is that although everything that's written on our money is, you know, implicitly backed by our law, there's no actual federal law in the book that says cash is legal tender you would think there is but there's no law and this comes straight from the US the US Treasury um that says there is no law on the federal level that says that businesses have to accept cash it's completely optional um now there are some local laws um Massachusetts for example has a state law a, a lesser known state law <laughs> that says that businesses have to accept cash so you're not going to see a cashless Starbucks in Massachusetts anytime soon um and there's a big push on some local levels in New York for example there's some politicians who say that Cashless businesses unfairly discriminate against lower-income individuals. Makes sense. A lot of people in the lower-income brackets don't have bank accounts, don't have debit cards, things like that. And the the argument is that you want a, a fully inclusive marketplace. So that's definitely a problem that would have to be worked out before cashless businesses become really widespread. Um, but yeah, it's completely legal for businesses to refuse cash, which I was surprised to find out. But it makes sense when you think about those two reasons.
0: Yeah, those are good examples. And Matt, I think you may need to go in there and uh, update your LinkedIn profile there to uh, reflect your legal expertise. Because that was <laughs> some Good research there, man. I appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners do, too. Uh, okay, let's pivot over to uh, Twitter for the week. We had some, some fun stuff happening on Twitter, and uh, we always like to Shine a light there to some of the good stuff that's going on. And at JG Labonte said, Hey, TMFJMO, I found that online checkout using PayPal is so frictionless that I buy stuff before I can talk myself out of it. I bet lots of other folks have this problem too. Next time I'll try to buy more PayPal instead. Uh, Jay, probably not a bad idea. That PayPal will pay dividends for some <laughs> some time to come. But I I feel your pain. I know the problem. Um, at every ninety Midwest said, "Hey, you mentioned you could put four more in your war on cash basket. Care to share what those would be? Are Discovery and American Express two of them?" Matt, I'm going to give you first up here. If you could add any stock or stocks to the war on cash basket, what would you throw in there that's not currently in there?
2: I like American Express just because they do a really good job of kind of spanning the entire spectrum, especially kind of the lower end consumers that I've referred to. Uh, Green Dot's one of my favorites that I'm about to talk about, but they've done a great job of like the prepaid debit card market being really inclusive (laughs) to you know the underbank they call. People without bank accounts and things like that. So, American Express has really been a kind of a pioneer of solutions for that segment of the market. So, I would definitely put Amex in there. Green Dot's one I talk about all the time. Um, They're kind of not only focusing on their own products, but on helping other companies offer cashless products to customers. Um, Just to to name a couple more, Um, I would actually put Apple in the war on cash basket. Apple Pay is getting bigger and bigger. Um, Amazon's another one, just because they're kind of the ultimate cashless business. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a good and, point. And uh,
2: so, I would argue that you could put more than four more in the the war on cash basket.
0: But we could probably have like our own fun, man. We could we we could probably build like a an ETF with all of these ideas. I like all those all those names you just said. I I would lean towards American Express over Discovery. I just don't think. I mean, Discovery's not a bad business. I just don't know that it has the same um I don't know that it has the same brand power that American Express has and the optionality to to build out uh new offerings and whatnot. I also uh was just thinking about this. Um you know, Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, you could throw that in there as as a, a lower risk sort of play, but they recently made some big investments in 2D the uh cashless movement and so that's a way you could participate and uh perhaps for a little uh global exposure uh Latin America in particular Mercado Libre might be one worth looking at because they have their own payment solution there um Mercado Pay I think right or something like that but uh it could be could be a little bit of a higher risk profile maybe but but definitely gives you exposure to that so yeah I mean a lot of different options out there for uh for Investing in that cashless movement—nice problem to have, I suppose. Uh, one more question we got from at CMG Chicago. He asks, "Gents, any good forums for real estate investors you would recommend?" Appreciate your work, Matt. This seems like it's right up your alley, so I'm <laughs> going to yield the floor to you and, and see if you can offer this guy some some uh, good resources.
2: Well, first I need to start off by saying the Motley Fool is going to be your Go to source for real estate before too long. You hey know, um, <laughs> we're we're launching our our real estate kind of sister website a little bit later this year. So stay tuned for that. Um, listen to the interview with Matty A that you did a few few months ago. I think yeah, um, for more a little more details on that. Um, but just <laughs> talking about some existing places to go. Um, my favorite's BiggerPockets. Um, just all one word, biggerpockets.com. dot com. Probably the best real estate social network and just full of resources. Um, If you are a beginner or a seasoned investor, kind of looking for more advanced strategies, that's a really good place to go. Connected Investors is another good kind of real estate social network. Um, They're more oriented, in my mind, toward like the fix and flip market than they are just kind of the buy and hold real estate market. But two great resources there. Um, There's a bunch of them, but those are two of the really big ones.
0: All good stuff. Thanks, man. Yeah, and that was a, a good interview with, with Matty Argersinger from a few months back. Um he gave a lot of good insight as to what you guys are doing. I know you're excited to get that thing going. So uh stay tuned because that's just that's just right around the corner. Uh okay, let's jump into what's uh coming up here for the week. We got our one to watch, uh taking a look at uh, stocks on our radar here for earnings season. Uh what is what is one that you are watching this week, Matt?
2: Uh, i'm watching berkshire um their ticker brk-a or -b depending on how much money you want <laughs> to spend on each share um but there's two two big events coming up within the next couple of weeks that i'm kind of paying attention to on the 15th of february all you know hedge funds and companies with big stock portfolios like that have to disclose what they did in the fourth quarter i have a feeling we're going to see that berkshire was very active in the stock market in the fourth quarter they were sitting on over a hundred billion dollars of cash in an environment that is Warren Buffett's dream invest dream environment for investing. Um he loves I I wouldn't be surprised if he bought himself some Christmas presents on Christmas on the Christmas Eve lows there. Um especially things like Apple and a lot of his favorite companies that just really, you know, took a dive in the second half the second half of the fourth quarter. Um beyond that there's also the company, Bur- Buffett's um, closely watched annual letter comes out about a week after that, along with Berkshire's year end results. We'll, we'll find out how much of their own stock they bought back, which has been a hot topic lately, and just kind of Buffett's feelings on the market and where Berkshire might be going. Hopefully, he whittled down his cash holdings a little bit. Investors would be really happy to see that. And I think that's exactly what you're going to find out.
0: All right. Well, we're looking forward to that. And I'm going to go. Kind of on that same wavelength, there are little baby Berkshire that we always call it. Markel uh, earnings are coming out on Tuesday. Markel, the ticker MKL. Um, You know, not a lot that goes on with this business on a quarter to quarter basis. It's pretty consistent. You got the insurance business. You've got the Markel Ventures side of things. Uh, You know they got their investment portfolio, much like Berkshire Hathaway has. But uh, listeners will recall that there was a little bit of an issue here. They announced there was an investigation into a reinsurance side of the business, and and specifically, it was in regard to reserves. And uh, so, really, just looking for any clarity on that and how it could play out on the business here for the coming year. I mean, it's 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 a reserve issue. It doesn't sound like it's anything very. pivotal to the overall company uh, but you know hey maybe it plays out on the book value of the company i mean in the short run and maybe that offers investors an opportunity if there's a little dip in the stock but but it's just uh you know this is this has been one that we've owned for long periods of time here in a number of our services here at the Fool, and i suspect that will uh remain the case regardless uh what they say uh with the earnings release but hey if the stock does take a dive investors may want to take a look at it cuz it is Still a very good business. Um, uh, but I think that's gonna wrap it up for us this week, Matt. Appreciate you as always joining.
2: Always good to be here. Looking forward to next week.
0: Yes, sir. And speaking of net next week, a reminder for our listeners. Uh, next week we will have part two of our Between Two Fools interview with Dennis Zember, Ameris Bank Corp CEO. So stay tuned for that. Uh, really excited to be able to bring you that. And um, Thanks again for listening, folks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan, the man, Boyd. Enjoying that new motorcycle, Dan, be careful. For Matt Frankel, for Dennis Zember, I am Jason Moser. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.